You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Amen, right? I'm going to pray for us and we can all go home now. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so I'm Tyson. If you don't know me, I am one of the elders here. I help out on the music team, and I'm filling in today for pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Uh, he's on vacation this uh, week, and so is the McLeod family. And so it's going to be my honor and privilege to be able to uh, bring a message to you that I've been meditating on this week. Um, I only do this maybe once or twice a year, so the timing of all this is yet to be determined. But just know that I've been prayerfully thinking about every aspect of today, from the song choice to the background of the slides, to the video, to the, um, to the, to the scriptures that we've selected. So hopefully I'll get into a rhythm of things and it'll become a little bit more comfortable. Um, but let me go ahead and introduce the fact that today, um, I don't know if you were aware of this, I wasn't, I was actually informed by one of my friends. Um, if we were in a church that followed a liturgical calendar, today, let me just ask, does anybody know what today would be? Well, that's true. Today would be called Trinity Sunday. So it's the Sunday uh, reserved each year in the liturgical calendar to just emphasize the Trinitarian uh, God that we worship and serve. The Trinity is one of those most uh, fathomable, unfathomable things that we cannot even conceive. So I know in Adam's absence, why in the world would I go anywhere near it, right? But I think that it's really important for us to think about these things, not just because today is Trinity Sunday, because again, I chose this text before I even knew that, but it was one of those confirming things uh, that maybe this is what God wants us to hear today. So today I'm going to be in the book of Colossians. If you have your Bibles, I'd love it if you went to the book of Colossians. Colossians 1, um, if you're writing things down or going to take some notes, There are a couple of chapters in the Bible that are my absolute favorite, Um, and surprisingly enough, they're the first chapters in a lot of books. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Jude, um, Ephesians 1. I think a unique characteristic about the introductions to these books are that Paul oftentimes, or the gospel writers, or the uh, the general letter writers will, will write with an emphasis on the deity of Jesus or the doctrine that we are to believe before going into the other half of the book, which is about how we are to behave. So this, this foundation of, of, of belief kind of precedes the commands to go and practice it. And so today I'm going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, which is really just a chapter and a look about the supremacy of Jesus. Now, if I had just come up today and said, I want to teach about the supremacy of Jesus, some of you, even our kids in here, might say, what does that mean? But after watching that video, do you think that you understand what it means that Jesus is supreme? What is he supreme over? Everything, right? I love that, um, that quote by Abraham Kuyper, not John Piper, but Abraham Kuyper that said, there is not one square inch on planet earth on which the risen Lord does not say, mine, and I rule it. And so today, we want to look at some of these things together. Um, I'm going to read the text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll kind of go through um, this a little bit at a time. The text here in Colossians 1, um, if you're looking at it, I'm actually going to back up to verse 13. And it says, He, being the Father in the preceding verse in 12, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us 
into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we're talking about the son here. Notice it says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He, verse 15, is now talking about the son. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Pray with me. Father, we do come and we ask that you would now speak. Speak through your word. Speak to my heart. Uh, God, I, I know I've been looking at these texts for so long, but Lord, allow them to come together. May the message be heard today of the supremacy of your Son, in whom are hidden all the wisdom and treasures of knowledge. And may it guard us from idolatry, from false teaching. Would it instill in us attitudes of humility? And would it lead us to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called? May this foundation of knowing who Jesus is raise our awareness and allow that supremacy to impact every aspect of our life. We do love you and trust you in this moment that your word will not return void. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the summary sentence uh, for today is this. Since Christ reigns supreme over all creation, not if, since, let us worship him by surrendering our hearts to orbit around the center of his authority. Let's just take it one little half at a time. Since Christ reigns supreme, he's the center of the universe. It's not our son, it's the son, S-O-N. Since he's the center, then let us respond in worship by surrendering our hearts to orbit around the center of his authority. I'll explain why I worded it like that. And then allow his supremacy to extend into every aspect of our lives. For kids and for me, Jesus is the king. So let's trust and follow him. He's the king. Now notice Christ is the center of the universe. I don't need to let Christ be the center of the universe. He already is, whether I acknowledge him or not. So whether you're a believer in here today who has acknowledged the supremacy of Jesus, or whether you're someone who is still rejecting him, it doesn't change the fact that Christ is still on his throne. I like to pray when I I teach a middle school class, a middle school Bible class, and often on days like this where it's overcast or especially rainy, I like to pray every day the same thing, just because I want to instill it in the hearts of our students. I often pray, Lord, On this dreary day, would you remind us that just on the other side of those clouds is a sun shining in full strength? And whether we believe it or not, one day those clouds will dissipate and the sun will be seen just as it's always been 
shining in full strength. And I like to connect that with students that oftentimes we go through times where we, we, we go through trials or tribulations or hardships and it's cloudy. And maybe if you're an unbeliever in here, it's always been that way. But irregardless of what we may feel or even think, it doesn't change the fact that Christ is supreme, that He's on His throne, and that He rules and reigns. And nothing we say or think or even believe is going to change that fact. So we worship Him by surrender. We, we give up to this reality. We allow our lives to center around His authority. This is what I was getting at in our summary sentence here. So our point number one. Um, there's only going to be two points, and point one is probably a little bit longer than point two, so don't freak out whenever I'm like still in point one. Acknowledge Christ's supremacy over all creation. Now, if you're a believer in here and you just watched that video, this is easy, right? We're like, wow, Jesus is over everything. I, I acknowledge that, um, but that's not what I mean by the word acknowledge. I really search for a better word, but, but this acknowledge does have this idea of action too, it's, it's deeper than just believe it. Because James, if you've read James in the book of, uh, book of James chapter 2 and verse 19, it says, you believe that God is one? Well, great. You do well. But even demons believe and they shudder. So the enemy believes that Christ is the center of the universe as well. The enemy believes that Christ is supreme overall. So it's more than just believe it up here. As Marcus prayed, and as I know he'll teach next week in his passage, it's more of a head knowledge. It's a heart surrender. This acknowledging Christ's supremacy over all creation. Well, let's look at the text. The very first thing in verse 15, uh, we will see that Jesus is God. Um, Crazy enough, even with all the the things that I do in life, all the hats I wear. This last January, I decided to go back to school, take off some postgraduate studies. Little did I know this theological um, education that I'm pursuing is one that's more historical in nature, one that examines the early church and the ancient heresies, and it's very Trinitarian heavy. I wasn't expecting that. I thought it would be something I could kind of give a little bit in for a couple of years and walk out with a master's. But it's actually something that's very, very challenging to me. And I've been drowning, as it seems, in the Trinity for the last few months. My first module was on Christology. So I've been thinking deeply about the person of the Son, the divine Son, who is the Jesus that we think of, but a lot less like the Jesus in maybe our Sunday school pictures, who's just holding a lamb or with some kids around him. This is the risen Lord who when he comes again is more like Revelation describes him, victorious and coming back to eliminate all who have still rejected him. Let it be known that Jesus is God. Verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. This word image means likeness or representation. And we've seen the image of God in the Bible before. In fact, man and woman are created in the image of God. We also see image in Romans 1 all these Genesis 1, Romans 1. Just pick a first chapter of the Bible and read it. It's going to be great. Uh, Romans 1 talks about how we exchange the image of the invisible God, and we we exchange it for images of things that, that represent animals and creatures and beasts, and idolatry is formed in our hearts. And then we also see this word, I found it interesting, that image is, is the part in Mark 12 when Jesus says, whose image is on this coin? They're like, should we pay our taxes? He's like, whose image is here? They're like Caesar's. He's like, well, then give to Caesar's what belongs to Caesar, but then give to God what belongs to God. 
We are created in God's image. We belong to Him. But that's not what this is talking about. Jesus isn't created in the image of God like we are because we're fallen. Jesus was not. He's sinless. If you look at Hebrews 1, another great chapter, it says this in verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He is the radiance of it's like the sun rays shooting forth from the sun. The radiance, the visible thing that we can see and sense of the invisible God we see in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, lowercase g, of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Think about that. Satan's number one strategy, no matter what you're dealing with, is to keep you from seeing Jesus for who he is. Make Jesus out to be something lesser. Make Jesus out to be one of many other ways. But you just don't see Jesus for who he really is. Don't see him as the way, the truth, and the life by which no one will be saved without him. Don't see him like that. Because if you do, I think it'll be a very natural surrender to his lordship. Philippians 2, 5-7, through Paul tells that church, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count is equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Jesus was born in the likeness of men. So even Elsie Kate the other day and crawled up in bed and was thinking, when was God, when was Jesus born? Or how old is Jesus? And I was trying to explain, I don't, why are you asking these like really difficult questions? But Jesus, think about Jesus. When we think about Jesus as a human, as a person. We call that the incarnation. That's when the divine Son of God, who's always existed, who is God, took on a human flesh. He took on himself. Philippians 2, there's a, a side of theology that likes to believe that Jesus, this emptied himself, like he, he set aside some of his deity or some of his godlike qualities in order to take on. It's not subtraction, though. What we see is that Jesus, the divine son, took on, he added, not subtracted, he added onto himself a human nature. And we needed that, right? We needed Jesus to be that representative human nature for us because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. We needed a better representative. Jesus does that, but he was in the form of God. He is God. Verse 19 says, I'm skipping ahead down a little bit in Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So just in case we forget or we have already wondered in our minds, Paul brings it up again four verses later. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Now, I'm not going to go into the background. It's worth your time. There's an awesome, interesting story of the context of this church in Colossae. There's this ancient heresies that were arising it would eventually lead to something called Gnosticism, which believes you have to have this secret knowledge in order to connect with God, or, or that Jesus wasn't really God. He was like a, a lesser form and all this mumbo jumbo. Paul says, no, 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 no. Jesus is God. Let it be clear. He is God. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is the Father, right? And I'm not saying Jesus is the Holy Spirit, but our God, three in one, 
Jesus is God. Our children in, uh, I know Kids Club have been learning the New City Catechism, and there's one that I used to like to sing with my kids. It's, how many persons are there in God? And we respond, there are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three persons in one God. Next, Jesus is creator. Um, The fullness of God. Oh, I left out that part here. The fullness of God. You can go to John chapter 1 if you want to write that down. I'll just mention real quick. This is under the first point, Jesus is God. He's the fullness of God. John 1, 1 through 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In verse 14 in chapter 1, The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Further down in verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God. The only God, though, Christ, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. And then John 14, later on in the book, Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You're looking at your God. I find it interesting at the very end of the book in John, Thomas is the one's like, I'm not going to believe unless I see the holes in his hand. Jesus shows up and he falls down and says, my Lord and my God. Let me just take a little pause here. Modern day heresies, like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, they would say that Jesus is not worthy of being worshiped because he's not God. I love to go to the end of John and say, then why is Jesus accepting worship from Thomas? You see times where John in Revelation tries to bow down before an angel, and the angel says, don't do that. I'm just a fellow messenger. And then you see him in the book of Acts, people try to bow down to Paul and Barnabas, and they say, don't do that. We're just men. And yet Thomas, at the end of John, falls down and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus is like, now you believe? Blessed are those who believe and, and haven't seen. He doesn't correct him. He embraces that worship. The invisible God became visible in the incarnation. Philippians 2, 7 through 8. We read that. He was found in human form. Next, Jesus is creator. In verse 16 of Colossians 1, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Jesus is the creator. And if you thought, well, I thought the Father was, He is. God is the creator of heaven and earth. We're going to see this in a second in a in a creed that the church used to say hundreds of years ago. But God the Father created the universe through the Word, through His Word. And John 1 says the Word of God is the eternal Son. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is where Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, Mormons and even ancient Arians, these heresies arise. They say, Jesus can't be God. It says right there that He's the firstborn, meaning He's the one that was born created first. But that's not what that means. That, uh, that Greek word uh, is, is really talking about this idea of being first in rank. He's the firstborn. Like, think about the Old Testament firstborn, Jacob and Esau, and this right of the firstborn, the inheritance. If you had that, you had it all. And that's what made Jacob and Esau fighting all the time and uh, trying to, to argue about who had the rights of the firstborn. Je- Paul says Jesus is the firstborn. 
He's the first in rank, first in class of all of his time. Psalm 89, 27, if you're taking notes, that's a little clue. It says, I will make him the firstborn, comma, the highest of the kings of earth. So the psalmist isn't writing, I'm going to make him the firstborn, first created. He's equating firstborn with highest king of all the kings of earth. He's creator of everything, visible and invisible. Did you notice that it said that in Colossians 1.16? Created everything in heaven and on earth, whether it's visible or invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were made through him. John 1.3 also says all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In verse 9, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. But the world did not know him. And then Hebrews 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Everything finds its origin in Christ. So again, the ancient heresy believed Jesus is lesser. Paul's saying, not a chance. He's not lesser. In fact, in Ephesians 1, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also is in the one to come. Jesus is far above every authority and power. He's the creator. Next, Jesus is our sustainer. If you don't know what that means, kids, that just means that he, he didn't just create it and set it and leave it. He created it and he keeps it going. He sustains us. He's our sustainer. Verse 17, he's before all things and in him, all things hold together. Everything holds together. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, this is mind-blowing. I read in one commentary, I'm not going to go into it because I'm not a molecular scientist, but they talked about how even at the center of our atoms, there are these positively charged protons that are wanting to rip apart, but they don't, and they don't know why, and so they call it nuclear glue, and it's just, we don't know why everything's being held together. Colossians tells us why everything is being held together. It's Jesus. And one day when he's ready for it to not be held together, he doesn't really have to do a lot. He just has to stop holding it together. Right? He's upholding the universe by the word of his power. This is the victorious Jesus that we worship today. We see in Job 12, 7 through 10, Job says, But ask the beasts, they'll teach you. The birds of the heaven, they will tell you. The bushes of the earth, they'll teach you. The fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of Yahweh or the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. He sustains it. Let me show you this uh, quote here from Augustine or Augustine in AD 430. It says, before Abraham, I am. This is a part where the people were talking to Jesus and they're talking about Abraham and Jesus is like, look, before Abraham was, I am. And it's not because he was bad at speaking English with grammar he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He just said before Abraham was, I am. I, I'm eternal. And he, he references that and he says, that's what he said himself. The gospels speak, so listen to it or read it. 
But that's little enough being the creator before Abraham. He's the creator before Adam, the creator before heaven and earth, before all the angels and the whole spiritual creation, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, creator before all things whatsoever. Here's the Nicene Creed. This was arising after one of the similar heresies in the ancient church. And the church came together on this statement. This isn't scripture, but this is a confessional statement. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, maker, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. If you're a believer in this room, this isn't really hard to wrap your mind around. I mean, how this works out is, of course. But surrendering to the authority of Jesus isn't necessarily something hard to do intellectually. Maybe if you're an unbeliever here today, it's a little challenging because you you haven't believed in God. Or maybe you've been taught all these things all of your life, and you know you should, but something's just missing. It's not quite right. The ancient church and us today, we center our lives around these truths that Jesus is God, He's the creator and He's the sustainer, and that alone demands our surrender. I love how C.S. Lewis and his, his um, just Christology goes and says that Jesus was only, He was one of three things. He was either lying to people, which makes Him a liar. He was either crazy, like a lunatic. He didn't know He was lying to everybody because something was not right up here. Or He was Lord. There's only one of three options. If He's one of the first two, then He died And he definitely didn't come back from the dead because he was just a man. But if he was Lord and he was raised from the dead, then everything changes. And I hope that you understand that. If Christ is reigning on his throne, and he is, everything exists by him, through him, and for him. He has creator rights over us. He has creator rights over us. Um, So believer, what, what areas of your heart are wandering out of orbit and need to be recentered. That's a question that I started asking myself this week. What areas of my heart are wandering out of orbit or even in my pride trying to become the thing that everything else centers around? What areas of my day-to-day life do I need to acknowledge Christ's supremacy in? Um, I have this poster board conveniently just right here. Um, And I put Christ here in the very center So I wanted to ask you guys to help me. Um, What are some things that maybe we can be tempted as believers or even unbelievers in the room to place our heart's affections on or to place our focus on or to become an idol in our life? What are some of those things? I'm going to try to write them down. Okay, good. Family. Okay, what else? Money. What else? Okay, relationships. Okay, what else? Friends, relationships, yeah, what else? Good. Okay, yep, uh, job, I'm say advancement, all that stuff. Okay, what else? One more. We'll put other. How about that? There we go. So I've, uh, I've done a little terrible solar system here. Christ is the center of all these things. Now, um, step down here, put a hole in the podium. There we go. 
when we, I, I did this illustration maybe 13 years ago with a youth group when we were talking about worship. We were talking about how our hearts sit, should center on Jesus. When Christ is operating at the center of our hearts and our lives, and everything is in its proper orbit around Christ, things work, right? This would be helpful if this was a circle, but it's not. If you're listening on the podcast later and have no idea what I'm doing, I'm rotating a poster board, and everything's rotating nicely around Christ. But when we take our affection and our focus, and we take it off Christ, and we put it on one of those things that you talked about, like job or something, you notice that everything is out of orbit, right? I don't have to do this for each of them to kind of prove the point. So I'm just going to leave that there as well to kind of just be a visual reminder as you ask yourself, what, what areas of our life might be out of orbit this morning? Here's the, here's the good news. Christ is king. He's, he's accomplished a great salvation, and he offers a lot of grace for us sinners that come and say, Lord, I'm out of orbit. Will you, will you fix that? Will you rule and reign supreme in my heart like you are already ruling and reigning supreme in creation? Next, acknowledge Christ's supremacy in salvation. So the first half of 1 Corinthians verse 13 is just, Paul's just saying, Jesus is awesome. He really is. He's, he's the king. He's, in, he's incredible. He's God. He's worthy of your worship. And then he goes into a, a, another little section here. I thought about saying acknowledge Christ's supremacy in the church or saying acknowledge Christ's sufficiency. I mean, it's all kinds of stuff. These things aren't gospel they're just points. But I'm calling our hearts to recognize and acknowledge in our hearts that Christ is supreme over creation and He's supreme over salvation. Verse 18 says, um, and He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. I put up here, Jesus is our shepherd. We, we, we come to this local church, this lowercase c church, every Sunday but you know that Jesus is the captain and the chief shepherd of the universal uppercase C church all over the globe. Whether you're on, on, the, on the, the far east of our world who's probably already met and worshiped on this Lord's Day, or you're out west and you haven't met yet because you're still waking up, it doesn't matter. Jesus is the king. He's the supreme ruler of his church. And all true believers are members of that universal church. Whether you're a local member of our lowercase c church or not. If you're a Christian, you're a part of this. But we lead as under shepherds here in this church, Adam, Adam, Marcus, and I, we, we gather together, we pray, we seek to cast vision for our church, but we're not the leaders here, and you guys need to know that. Like, I know a lot of people might look at us and say, okay, they're the leaders of that church. Remember, one, we're just volunteers here. We're one of you trying to just say, follow us as we follow Jesus, but two, especially because we know this isn't our church. This is Jesus's church. And yes, there may be times where we get off of orbit as a church, even as leaders, and, and need to be recentered on that too. But Jesus is our chief shepherd. And I'm thankful for that because it takes a lot of pressure off me, right? In fact, he gives me promises. Instead of fear, he gives me promises. And in 1 Peter 5, he gives me a promise as an elder when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Work hard. Keep investing. Keep serving people and loving people because Jesus is coming back and he's the chief shepherd. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning. 
He's the head. First Corinthians chapter 12 is that chapter that's all about the church being like a body. And all of us are like different body parts. Some of you might feel really important like the mouthpiece. Some of you might feel really insignificant like a, an elbow or something. I don't know. But all of these parts of the body without one another could not function. But guess who's the head? Jesus is the head. He's the leader. We follow him. For just as one body has many members and all the members of one body, so it is with Christ. That's in 1 Corinthians. So I I read a a commentator who said, Jesus is not an angel who serves the church. Because in Hebrews it says their angels are ministering spirits for us. Jesus is not an angel who serves the church. He's the head of the church. He's the leader. And we are merely under shepherds of our great shepherd. Hebrews 13 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Next in Colossians 1, Jesus is our resurrection. He's our resurrection. Is that on there? Yes, it is. Okay, good. Jesus is our resurrection. What I, what I mean by that here is in verse 18, it says he's the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning, and he's the firstborn from the dead. Remember, he's not the first thing created. He's the first in rank. Here, this firstborn, he's the first one to have died that death like he died, completely sufficient, and be risen from the dead in a glorified body as the first fruits for all who have faith in him later. We have faith as believers that this life is not only this life. My favorite quote, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And guess what one thing is that will last? Our souls. We will be resurrected and given a glorified body because Jesus accomplished salvation through his own resurrection from the dead. Romans 15, 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. What great hope we have this morning because of that. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is why in John 11, when Jesus is talking to Mary and Martha, when Lazarus has died, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, oh, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she knew that. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Man, I feel like he's asking me that too. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son who is coming into the world. Martha had, she might have had her crazy moments, right? That that time when she was worried about serving and Mary was the one like adoring Jesus. She got off orbit. Here in this moment, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. And she says, I believe it. There are times when Jesus looks at us, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up, a guy that's often off orbit, who says things that are off all the time, says, you're the Christ. And he says, Peter, man didn't reveal that to you. You're right. So these people, they get this Christology right when it matters. And that's what I pray that God will do to our church too, is that we'll, we'll get our Christology right, that we'll trust him and we'll know that he's our king. Jesus is our reconciliation and our peace. Verse 20, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To reconcile, to, to bring back together, right? I, I tell my students when we come to a passage like this and a, a big word like reconcile, it means that something's been broken apart and you're going to bring it back together. And oftentimes, at least in the middle school world as well, like we try to bring a gift or some form of appeasement to see if that'll fix our relationship. Like you and your friend are fighting. Maybe you show up with Dunkin' Donuts and say, hey, can we be friends again? If they look at that box and say, how dare you think you could win over my friendship with donuts and throws it away, that wrath has not been satisfied. That relationship has not been reconciled. The offering was not sufficient. Fill in the blank with whatever it is that you might bring to the table to try to reconcile in a relationship. If it was sufficient, then it works and your relationship's restored. Jesus is our reconciliation. Whether it was on earth or in heaven, He makes peace between us and the Father, between us and God by the blood of His cross. He comes, He's not offering donuts or offering anything else. He's not even offering the blood of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which were only good until the next time you sinned. He's offering His own blood, and it was so sufficient that it worked to reconcile us to God. But get this, if you're an unbeliever here, it doesn't happen by default. You can't just hear me say that Jesus did this, and you're like, wow, that's awesome, that's good news. It is good news, but you have a part to play, and it's repentance. It's turning from yourself, turning from your life of sin, and giving up. I'm not trying to be the captain of my soul anymore and just pencil Jesus in and let him orbit around my story. I'm like releasing. I'm I'm giving up to be orbiting around his authority, back to the summary sentence, making peace by the blood of his cross. I love verse 13 and 14 where we opened up with, it said, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. This deliverance means rescue. And guess what? We've already seen it. You, took it, you look at that same word in the Old Testament. It's in Exodus where we just covered the Lord saved Israel that day when they walked through the Red Sea. Saved. He rescued. He delivered. It was mentioned earlier when he passed over their homes. The Lord saved. He rescued us. There's a greater delivery going on here. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, far worse than Pharaoh. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, but he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This transferring word is something that's really cool. That's like when conquering kings would come in and literally take over your nation and pick you up and exile you and move you somewhere else against your will. Here's the great news is that Jesus does that in a good way. He comes into the domain of darkness and rescues believers who put their faith in him and he transfers them into a brand new kingdom. He's doing something new. I want to be in exile there. Right? I, I want to be exiled with him to the kingdom of light. There's so many good stories uh, and resources. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote a book called Holy War. Man, it's so good. This is all about the, the kingdom of man's soul being overtaken by Diablos or something. Represents Satan. And ear gate and eye gate and all these things are just closed shut and the king sends Captain Conviction to the gates, to knock on the gates, to say, let the rule of the king in. <laughs> Don't buy into the lies of those who've overtaken you and convinced you that you own this little thing. 
this land is his, like, open up. And yet it just closes even tighter. And what's really cool, I love it uh, so much, is that Captain Conviction writes a letter back to the king, and, and he has a petition. Send us reinforcements. These, these gates are closed tight. And what's awesome is it says that when the letter was delivered to the king, it actually was received by the king's son. And the king's son read it, reworded it, and then spoke it to the king or his father as his own request. Not Captain Conviction's request, his request. Father, may it please you to send me and let me go. And man, when he shows up, war's over, right? The son wins, and the story's awesome. But going back to Pilgrim's Progress, my other favorite, I took this little quote here from a great version. Kids, you really want to look this up later, okay? It's called Pilgrim's Progress, the musical. Don't freak out. It's actually really cool. It's on YouTube. It was made by like a college group. It's really good. They have made it into an Amazon book. I love it because it took the themes and the story of Pilgrim's Progress and put it to rhyme. And maybe it's because I'm a music guy. I just like to hear it rhyming. When Pilgrim, who becomes Christian, makes it to the Valley of Humiliation, he meets this great foe, Polyon. I wrote this down. So these are not Bunyan's exact words. This is the remake. Traveler, where do you come from and where are you going? With sword in hand. My name once was Pilgrim, but now I am Christian. I'm heading for an everlasting heavenly kingdom. I have fled for my life from the city of destruction, which will soon be burned up for its sin and corruption. Ha! If that is true, then you belong to me. For I am the ruler of that dark city. How is it then that you've escaped from your master? As my subject, I command you, turn back all the faster. You can never give me that which my heart most desires. You and your devilish friends are all liars. For the wages of sin is misery and death. And I will never return while my lungs still have breath. I've given myself to serve a new king. And I wouldn't trade his love for anything. Your weak king was crucified. All the world knows. And he cuts him off. It is true that he died, but just as true that he rose. He ascended into heaven and is now enthroned above. And his death was to show the great depths of his love. By his cross, I've been freed from my burden of sin. And never, he screams, will I wear that great burden again. Man, so good. And, of course, Apollyon is powerless against that. No rightful claim. It's like he knew the loophole. Oh, man, he knows. He actually doesn't belong to me. He has been transferred, and there's nothing I can do about it. The Nicene Creed goes on to say, this Jesus, who for us, for our salvation, came down from heaven was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, as all the world knows. But it's just as true that he rose, because on the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures. As we continue to study in the next few weeks, I'm wrapping up here, as we're in Exodus and we're thinking about this great deliverance, we're thinking about God rescuing his people out of 
Egypt, out of slavery. Keep this in mind. God's not just on a mission to rescue them out of something, some domain of cruelty or domain of slavery. He's rescuing them to himself. He's on a mission not only to get them out of Egypt, but as I've read before, he's now on a mission to get Egypt out of them. And so he's working. He's about to bring them to Mount Sinai, we will see. He will give them the law. They will fail immediately and continue to do so. But he's on a mission to get Egypt out of them. He is our great Savior. His deliverance is greater deliverance. Here's what's really crazy about the book of Jude 1. I can't really say chapter 1 because there's not really chapter 2, but Jude, verse 5, which is most likely the half-brother of Jesus, who did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry, like James, who would not have believed in Jesus until he saw him rose from the dead, which, by the way, if you have a sibling, you would feel the same. If they told you they were your God, you would be like, no. But if they came back from the dead, you might change your mind. Jude did the same thing. And listen to what Jude says. He knows Jesus personally. And he says in Jude 5, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, dot, 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 dot. I'll fill in the dot, dot, dot in just a second. Jesus was the one who rescued them out of Egypt. And Jude understands this person, this human that I see is not just a human. This is God in human form, who once I thought was my brother, who is my king. And he's the same God that's rescuing and delivering out of Egypt, and he's doing a greater rescue and deliverance today through the gospel. So question to believers, what areas of your heart need to be recentered around the great depths of his love? These are the areas of our life that might need to just be recentered practically. I got a lot of work to do myself. But what great areas of our hearts need to be recentered around the great depths of his love? Where could the gospel and meditating on what Christ has done for us lead us to greater humility, greater appreciation, less complaining, more thanksgiving? All these areas that I, I'll be first to get in line saying, Lord, center me. So I'm not telling you I got this figured out. I'm telling you, but what areas of your heart need to be recentered around the great depths of his love? But to the unbeliever, do you know this Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to the eternal son? Here's the dot, dot, dot. Jude said, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Oh, that's, that's, that's harsh. Why are you speaking of wrath or judgment from the pulpit? Because it's a, it's a big deal and it's serious. If you don't know Christ, come, hear, repent, and believe. All those people that left Egypt that we're studying about right now, just keep in mind in a few chapters, none of them are going to enter the promised land except for their children and Joshua and Caleb because they reject God. Hebrews 3, here's my appeal to you. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, in any of you, believer or unbeliever, an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those that were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter their rest because of unbelief. Don't let unbelief rule in your heart. Let Christ rule in your heart. Because at the end of the day, whether you see beyond the clouds or not, whether you've convinced yourself there is no sun shining, the clouds will dissipate and you'll see it. But you'll see the sun, S-O-N, sun. So why does all this matter? Oh, by the way, there's the other part of the Nicene Creed. He ascends to heaven. He sits on the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. He's the king. So why does all this matter? Meditating on the supremacy of Christ. That just means thinking over and over. It doesn't mean like Eastern, hum, like empty the mind. It's filling. It's the opposite. Filling your mind on the supremacy of Christ over his creation will protect you from false teaching, which is Paul's goal in Colossians. But it'll also help guard our hearts from idols. It'll help us remember how to center our lives around the one who deserves to be centered around. And then also, Meditating on the supremacy of Christ for our salvation should lead us to greater humility and equip us to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called. I've given you kind of some application mixed in all throughout this today, but application for the believer. Think of Piper's voice screaming it. Press on to know him. We were made for this. We weren't made to do diddly things. Man, when he says that, I'm just like so convicted about that. Press on to know him. As Marcus prayed earlier, and as he'll mention next week, though, this is not an intellectual acknowledgement. If you believe that there was a Jesus, you do well. So do demons. And atheists should too. There was a historical guy named Jesus. There's no arguing about that. But not everyone believes that this Jesus was God. Press on to know him. Don't take a break from pursuing Jesus this summer. This might be for kids or for people like me who have jobs that kind of change a little bit during the season. If you work a nine to five and every day is the same, the summer is kind of neither here nor there to you. But maybe your kids are there and your, 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 um, your routine's thrown off. The summer is not an opportunity for us to take a break from pursuing Christ. He's pursued us. He's humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And now he's been highly exalted above every knee that will bow, every tongue that confess. Consider using your summer this uh, to grow in your knowledge of the Trinity. This is something that you can do with me. Uh, My next module in school in the fall is going to be on the Holy Spirit. So maybe in the wintertime, you'll see me again and I'll preach a sermon centered around the the great hope we have in the Spirit. Um, I'm going to be reading this book this summer. I can't speak for how awesome it is. I just know I have to read it. So if you'd like to read it and have some conversations with me, it's called Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett. There's other great books out there on the Trinity of God. You can think about uh, A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. Just meditate on these truths. If you want to be just broadened a little bit to understand that our great hope that we believe in isn't something that you should believe because I said so, but the scriptures have been saying so and have been preserved throughout history. This is a great little book called Know the Creeds and Councils. It just shows like the different types of heresies and things that had to be worked through as people tried to formulate these 
truths about what the scriptures teach about who Christ is. So simply Trinity and um, know the creeds and councils. For the unbeliever, I think it goes without saying, right? The unbeliever is to repent and to trust in Jesus. And this doesn't mean that you're just someone that's walked in and your life is really worldly. This might be you sitting in church, being a part of our church plant for the last 10 years. I don't know your heart. Only God knows your heart. Repent and trust. Ask yourself, am I repenting and trusting in Jesus while there is still time? Hebrews says, as long as it's called today. Repentance, again, in case you're confused by that, just means turning. Turning from self. Turning from sin. But it's not just that. It's faith. It's trusting. It's turning to Jesus. Turning to Christ. The rest of Colossians, I wish I had time to talk about that, is awesome. Chapter 3, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Put on as God's holy ones these things. Take off these things. But it starts with your initial turning from sin, turning in faith to Jesus. I'm going to ask the guys to come forward. We're going to sing a song here at the end. I'm going to leave you with this quote as I pray. Abraham Kuyper, in case you missed it the first couple of times. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Will you yield to that today? Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, our God, three in one, we sang about this morning. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Christ the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would rule and reign supreme in our hearts today. I pray that you would have used my disorganized thoughts to, to just pull together to communicate a great truth about Jesus. As we see in Revelation, there is no one more awesome than he. There's no one to be feared and revered more than he. It's not the Antichrist. It's not the beast. It's Jesus when he shows up in chapter 19. And we're at the part of history where that's the next thing to happen. Christ is not coming back riding on a donkey. He's coming back in victory. And so, God, we pray that you would be honored today. We thank you and we ask that you would lead us into this summer into greater awareness of who you are and what you've done and accomplished for us. Help the reality of what you've done in creation. Help us to be on guard against idolatry. God, we pray that you would help us think deeply about what you've done on the cross, that it would humble us and lead us to greater humility and not arrogance, to know that if you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, why can't we humble ourselves when we come to our own relationships with others? Why are we so concerned about being right instead of listening to our commanding chief who says, forgive? Why am I so concerned about being worrisome and fearful about the, the days ahead when my commanding officer has said, do not be anxious. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go, therefore, God, help us to live in light of the supremacy of Jesus. Lord, as we sing a song that's unfamiliar but easy to learn, may we pray and make it our prayer that you would be the center of our life. You're already the center of the universe, so come rule and reign supreme in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray.
Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.